Welcome to CX Stories. My name's Thashara Dibley and I'm a Deputy Director here at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. You're listening to an episode we're recording as part of our ASEAN Forum 2020, looking at the response to COVID-19 across ASEAN. And today we're speaking with Associate Professor Greg Fox, who's a respiratory physician, epidemiologist and clinical trialist committed to using research to improve healthcare among disadvantaged populations. He's the clinical academic lead for the Faculty of Medicine and Health at Cumberland Campus. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Greg's going to talk to us a little bit about the health impacts and response to the pandemic across ASEAN. Maybe you could start us off by mapping out the ways the health sectors in the countries of ASEAN have responded to the pandemic. There's been a big variation in the way in which health sectors have responded to COVID-19. And that partly reflects the differences in the way that the virus has spread throughout the population in different places. In some countries where the virus really never got a foothold, such as in Vietnam, there's been an emphasis upon population health measures to try and prevent the virus from spreading. And so um, some examples of that include closing the borders, instituting quarantine for all people arriving in the country, and then doing intensive contact tracing to try and identify people who've had exposure to COVID-19 in order to prevent them from continuing to transmit. Now, that strategy is very effective in places where there are low numbers of cases. In some other settings, though, that's much more challenging. In a setting like the Philippines, where you have literally tens of thousands of cases, it then becomes very difficult to go and individually identify and isolate people who've been contacted. And so the emphasis then becomes much more upon treating people who become unwell and trying to go and reduce transmission through social isolation. And so some examples in the Philippines, for example, uh, would include a reduction in the number of people who are able to be carried on public transport, testing of people who are working in government departments and then trying to reduce the number of people who have illness who go to work and having routine screening at health facilities and other places where people might congregate. And the goal there is to really try and slow the transmission down rather than to completely stamp it out. There have been some other settings, such as Singapore, where there have been really focal transmission events which have been concentrated amongst migrant workers. And so in that setting, where there's been relatively limited transmission within the general population, there have been some populations which have been very significantly affected. And that is particularly due to crowded living environments and a relative lack of diagnostic tests and healthcare in some of the migrant worker accommodation. And so the response there has been to try and isolate some of those communities and then institute rapid testing and uh, quarantine for individuals who are affected. So the public health response really has been the most important part of the health response of many countries in Southeast Asia. For countries where there have been very large numbers of cases, it starts to then put a huge amount of pressure upon health facilities. And this is where you start to see uh, intensive cares and emergency departments becoming busy because people are becoming sick and presenting for treatment. And this then has a flow-on effect of creating a huge pressure upon the health workforce, a need for personal protective equipment to make sure that people in those environments can be safe, and then, if required, the provision of intensive care facilities. And so, fortunately, many countries in Southeast Asia have not yet got to the stage where their health facilities are overstretched, but preparedness for that is certainly an important part of the health response in many different countries. And even if it ends up that not all countries require it, it's far better to be prepared for rapid rises in case numbers, uh, given what we've seen in other parts of the world, including in China, in Italy and in North America. So in summary, there's been a big variation in the transmission of COVID between different countries in Southeast Asia. 
and therefore considerable variation in the way in which the public health authorities have responded. So what's really interesting with Southeast Asia is the diversity, not only in the response, as you've pointed out, but also in the rates across the region. Some countries like Laos and Cambodia and Myanmar seem to have quite low rates. I was wondering if you could explain why this is the case. The reason for variation in case notifications is really interesting, and there's probably a few factors at play. An obvious one, but I think really important, is if you don't test, then you don't find it. And so there may be, in some countries where there are relatively few laboratories that can perform COVID testing, there may be a lot more cases out there in the community than are actually detected. That's particularly the case where there may be larger rural populations where people simply don't have access to the PCR diagnostic test that is routinely performed for COVID-19. A second reason may be that some people may not have many symptoms and so therefore may not come forward to be tested. We know from research done in other countries that younger people tend to be a lot less sick when they get the virus. And so in countries such as Laos, where there are a very large proportion of the population from younger age groups, it may be that they simply are not feeling unwell uh, and therefore don't go forward for testing. And if there's no routine community screening, then people may not be picked up. On the other hand, if you look in some countries where there have been huge numbers of testing uh, done, such as Singapore, it may be that there's a lot of people who are being detected at a very early stage of the disease. And so those people may not actually require any treatment and they may not require going to a health facility, but simply to isolate. An important difference between the countries is the mortality rates. And that's also going to be affected by the age distribution in those countries. If you have countries such as Japan, where there are older populations, uh, or within Southeast Asia, countries where there are populations who may be more vulnerable due to comorbidities, then you may see higher mortality rates and therefore more intensive testing done in those places. So it's a really complicated question as to what is the true number of cases. But almost certainly, there are many countries in which the officially reported statistics are significant underestimates. And in those sorts of places, might we see other things that indicate that the virus has been spreading? So one way of looking at the true burden of the virus is to look at what is called excess deaths. So if you take the average number of deaths for a certain time of year over, say, the past five years, and you compare that to what is the mortality rate now, then if you see a difference between those two, then it's likely that any increase uh, would be due to COVID. And so that's a method which has been used in some other settings to try and approximate what is the burden due to COVID-19. Another way of doing it is to look at the number of people who present to hospitals. It tends to be that the people who present to hospitals are the tip of the iceberg. But if you test people who come in with respiratory symptoms to hospitals and you see a very high proportion having COVID, then you can make some conclusions that probably there's a lot of COVID in the general community as well. And then finally, there are some serological surveys which are either being done or being proposed to do measurements of a random sample of people in the population to look at how many people have been infected in the past. And that can give you an idea about how effective your screening program has been. So just on that, though, all of those things require pretty strong public health systems to be able to measure it. And in some of these countries, we don't have that sort of infrastructure, which leads me to my next question, which is really about the link between the economy and the health effects of COVID-19. So there is a direct and bi-directional relationship between economics and health. As you've indicated, if countries have got strong 
health systems, and this is typically strong public health systems, prior to the epidemic, then those countries will be well positioned to be able to respond quickly and to respond broadly in order to diagnose and then to isolate people and if necessary to treat them. And so countries which have got greater investment in their health systems are going to be better positioned to do that. Conversely, in countries which have got patchy access to healthcare, particularly for vulnerable populations, it's going to be in those places that the disease can spread most rapidly. And so if there are pockets, say, for example, in slum areas where there's really very little financial capacity to seek testing, then people may tend to stay at home and not get tested. They may tend to have to go to work to continue to earn money. And so that creates an environment where people are much more likely to spread the infection. And in the other direction, COVID-19 is likely to cause significant poverty and exacerbate existing inequalities. For people who get sick and potentially develop complications of the disease, it can prevent them from earning an income and can cause catastrophic costs for them individually. But also at a societal level, if there are less people able to work, if a lot of the economy is shut down, that's going to mean a lot of people who are living day to day are going to have difficulty to get food and difficulty to get at work. And therefore, that will lead to other consequences uh, due to malnutrition, due to poor access to treatment of chronic disease. And that can then lead to the spread of other infections as well. So there's really going to be a profound economic impact as a result of the health crisis. And it's going to be essential in order to minimize that economic impact to try and respond as effectively as possible to contain the health side of things. So it sounds like what you're saying also is that in addition to the long-term economic impact, there are potentially long-term health impacts as well. What sort of patterns do you see emerging in the region? We know that in many countries in Southeast Asia, there are endemic infections, including tuberculosis, including malaria, including other viral illnesses that already exist in the population. There's also very high rates of chronic disease as well. And when you put a huge stress upon a health system, What that does is it will withdraw resources from those other diseases to focus on COVID, and it will mean people are less likely to come forward to have those conditions treated. And what that means is a disease which is infectious like tuberculosis can spread more rapidly because people will delay getting diagnosed, or people might not even think of tuberculosis because everybody's focusing on COVID. So they might test them for COVID, find it's negative, and then miss the diagnosis. And so what that can potentially do is set back progress that's been made in many countries in controlling other infectious diseases. As far as chronic disease goes, prevention of complications of diabetes or heart disease um, is really important and that requires people getting access to medications and being diagnosed properly and being properly managed. And if the healthcare systems become fragile and don't help to prevent those complications, then down the track we could also see an increase in heart disease, uh, in strokes and in other complications of chronic disease. And so I think it will be really important for health systems not only to measure the effect of COVID directly, but also to look at some of those downstream impacts and to be preempting those effects by trying to maintain investment in other diseases. Our way out of this pandemic seems to be the vaccine. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how a vaccine could be scaled up within the ASEAN region. A vaccine is really what everybody is looking for. It's important from the outset to acknowledge that whether a vaccine is possible and if so, how effective it is, is still unknown. It could be quite some time before an effective vaccine is available. But once a vaccine does become available, and I think that's likely that there will be something which is effective, then it's going to be a question of how to scale it up. 
And you can imagine that in contrast to the existing vaccine programs in many countries where it's usually young kids that receive the vaccine, um, it really requires quite a different and a much more ambitious approach to scale up a vaccine to an entire adult population as well. And so in order to prepare for scaling up a vaccine, countries all over the world need to be starting to plan now for how they're going to do this. There are some logistical questions. How do you maintain a cold chain if a vaccine has to be kept cold when you're going out to remote populations where they might need to get the vaccine? How do you make sure everybody has had the vaccine and that you monitor the rate of, of rollout to make sure that you don't miss populations? Who gets it first? Do you give it to people who are oldest and most vulnerable? In which case, how do you decide who they are? And most importantly, how do you actually produce the vaccine in the first place? There are some countries in Southeast Asia which already have capacity to manufacture vaccines, but there are many who will have to import vaccines internationally. And it's become clear that there is already a bit of an economic nationalism developing around vaccine production that may make it hard for some of the poorer countries to access vaccines in a timely manner. It's going to be essential that the region functions together to try and work out what is going to be the best outcome for the whole region rather than just prioritise people who, who might have the highest financial capacity to purchase a vaccine. But you can see that there are a huge number of pragmatic but also ethical questions around how this might be done. Thanks, Greg. Those are really complicated logistical issues and serious ethical questions to consider. Look, thanks so much for mapping out what's going on in terms of the health sector impact and response in, in ASEAN. And we'll look forward to speaking with you, Greg, at the panel discussion. Thanks. Thank you very much. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. This episode is part of a special series of recordings we're doing for the 2020 ASEAN Forum, which focuses on the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic across the region. Each of our speakers has recorded a video in addition to this podcast, which you can catch on our Facebook page, YouTube channel, or the SEAC website. If you have questions for the speaker, please post them wherever you watch the video or post it on Twitter using the hashtag ASEANforum20. I'll be putting the questions to our panelists during a panel discussion on the 12th of August, which will be recorded and posted on all of our channels as well. See you there.